Okay, so welcome, and it's good to have you here. Daniel Steinberg, very close friend of mine, has had a huge impact on my life. I'm excited to, to have this conversation today. We're going to kind of jump around and talk about a lot of different things, but um, for people who don't know you, I figured you could just start off with just a high-level summary of a little bit about um, your career, your history, and include some of the cool stuff that you know I want to hear about that I've heard about before sure. um, regarding your early days. Okay. So um, right now I'm a rabbi, uh, but I wasn't always a rabbi. Uh, before I was a rabbi, I was a marketer. And before I was a marketer, I was a comedian. And before I was a comedian, I was an intern for Saturday Night Live. And before I was an intern for Saturday Night Live, I was an intern and writer for Howard Stern. <laughs> that's awesome. So that's the, uh, the high level uh, chronologically reverse uh, sequence. And, for, and just for a little background, Daniel and I got a chance to work together for maybe over a year, about a year, year or two. A year and a half, something like that. And we got to participate in a leadership program together. And so we're going to touch on that a little bit today. But the heart of what I wanted to speak about today is I've been following you recently on LinkedIn, um, sharing about your new career opportunity and your career path. And <clears throat> public speaking and just speaking in general is such an incredible topic considering that people, they say, would rather die than right. actually speak in public, people right. who have a fear of this. So right. maybe you could just, let's just talk about um, the heart of public speaking, talk a little bit about what you're doing now so that you can kind of give some context, but let's just touch on, you know, what is the fear? Why is it so scary? And why is it so hard for people to speak in public? So it's not anything I've really dwelt on because, it, I mean, it, it's, an, it's almost insurmountable. If it doesn't come natural to you, it's it's almost insurmountable to, to consider getting up on stage and speaking to people in public. And, uh, and, and I had it, I had that stage fright. I had that. Um, but when you're a comedian, so the path to being a comedian is, is to do that night after night after night for years. So it took me, it takes most people, I think about two years, four or five nights a week, getting in front of strangers, different crowds, uh, till you can break that. And once you break that, you don't want to look back. <laughs> you know, it, it's just, it's so difficult. So it's hard for me to really uh, backtrack and analyze what the actual fear is. But I, I think, you know, in, in a kind of nebulous type of way, it, it's being judged. You know, you're up there, there's no net, there's no, it's not like you're in a band where you have backup, you know, musicians and singers and things. You're, you're there for everybody and everybody is, is, is judging everything that's coming out of your mouth and, and you know, you have nothing to fall back on. You know, it's all you, you who are you going to point to and say, you know, I didn't really mean that. And it's you, you have to stand by it. And so it's, it's a, uh, it's like thin ice, you know, and you can feel it cracking underneath you sometimes and it's really scary. But, uh, but the way to, to just like everything, it's, it's exposure therapy. You know, you just have to do it again and again and again and again in front of a lot of people. And then eventually it's just, if fear never actually goes away, it just becomes manageable. It's something that you 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 feel this this twinge and you're like, well, okay, but I, I know I, I can do it because I've done it so many times already. So it never really goes away. Unless you're a natural. Some people are natural. Some people are hams. Uh, they love being in front of, you know, in a spotlight. They love being in front of people. Um, that wasn't necessarily what I, what I liked about it. Um, what I like is, is being able to creatively self-express myself. And if I could find a better way to do it without that fear, I probably would have, but, uh, but that was the best vehicle for me. You know, it's funny. Um, I always talk about what Dan Sullivan teaches in regards to the four C's, 
where he teaches, if you make a commitment to do something, in this case, I want to commit to maybe being able to be speaking in public. Right. And then you have the courage to get up there and do it. Yeah. And then the third C is you build the capability to like do it again because you did it once. Right. But with public speaking. The confidence. That's the. Right. It's the the formula for confidence. But with public speaking, it's not the case. You don't really build the capability unless you, like you said, you have to do it a lot. Like usually you build the capability for something. One time you're good, you did yeah, it. Yeah. But now with public speaking, even if I get up in front of people now, I still, but right. you get that feeling. That it never not. goes away. It never goes away. And 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 it um, it's just something that you, it, it's like something you live with, you know, but you know, you know that you can do it. So you just keep on, you, you've, you've done so many reps that you, you know you can do it. It doesn't frighten you to the point where you feel like you're going to throw up or something. Uh, you know, that doesn't happen anymore. But there's still that, that, that panic, that momentary panic when you get up in front of people and you're just like, oh, uh, okay, all right. You know? <laughs> so, uh, so talk to me about your current role because I've seen you get up in front of a congregation before and yeah. talk. And you're very good and you're very casual and it's Thank very you. easy for you. And, but granted, you've been doing it for years. In yeah. front of people. So talk yeah. to me about what you're doing now and, and, and what led to that and what are you doing? So so my last iteration was before uh, before I became, you know, the interim rabbi at the uh, synagogue over here in Columbus. Uh, I was a comedian. I was doing comedy and I was uh, and it was my first love and middle love and last love. And it just, you know, I, I pick it up, put it down, pick it up, put it down. And it's been, you know, 30 plus years since I've been doing it off and on. So, and, and, uh, and that's a bug that, uh, you're, you're, I think you're born with, uh, you know, some people, they like to do it. They like the idea of it. They want to try it, but some people have to do it no matter what. And for me, that was something that I, I had to do and I couldn't, couldn't shake it. Um, and so, uh, what happened was COVID COVID came. And for the first time in the history of, I don't know, maybe since like the bird, the, the flu of 1918, or I don't know what it is, you couldn't get a crowd. You, uh, you could not have a crowd assembled anymore, I- indoors at least. Uh, and it just killed all live performance. No music acts, you know, no, no uh, spoken word, no, no comedy, no, it was just dead. Everything came to a screeching halt. Uh, and it really made me think about, it was, it was a forced pause and it made me think about what I'm doing with my life, where I'm headed, what my goals are, what my uh, accomplishments are, what my legacy will be. Um, and, uh, and it was a forced break. I, I couldn't get it on stage if I wanted to. There was nothing, you know, people were doing like Zoom comedy, but it, that just wasn't my thing. <laughs> so, so I really, it was a forced break. And I started to think about uh, in terms of spirituality, uh, what I really was, what came to the world to accomplish. And, uh, and it wasn't comedy, unfortunately. It was something that I loved. But it wasn't. I didn't feel it was something that uh, that was worth, uh, you know, living 100, 100 plus years. And you know, it, it, I didn't feel like that was my legacy. That, that that's what. So uh, so I, I decided to try to uh, an experiment. And I decided what I was going to try to do is use my uh, that same creative muscle that that you use to kind of come up with jokes. That it's 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 a muscle. It's it, it's it can be honed and 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 refined and and toned uh, and it's a muscle it, it's a way of looking at the world and, and kind of coming up with things and uh and it's almost sometimes it's like grasping something out of thin air because you know it, you can't you can't see it coming if you saw it coming it wouldn't be a joke that that's that's the whole idea of misdirection is is you know it's something that you never would have thought of so so i i, I tried to to see could i apply that same discipline and same creative muscle to spirituality um, in terms of uh, studying Jewish texts and trying to extract wisdom from them. And I, and I could, and I did. And I did it for the duration of COVID. 
uh, where, where I couldn't perform and I couldn't, um, couldn't really, there, there was, I didn't really feel motivated to write because I didn't know when I was going to get the chance to perform. I mean, you know, we lived through it. We, we didn't think it was ever going to end. You know, it's, it's amazing that we're sitting across from each other yeah. here right now. So, um, so I did that. And then I, I, there's something in me kind of, uh, for lack of a better word, grew up or matured. And it was, uh, it was, it was, I, I, I lost the bug. I never, I, I enjoy comedy. I love it. And, and, uh, I love coming up with a great joke, but, but at now spirituality is really my first and, um, uh, primary, uh, area of focus. And so when that, when that flip, when that switch flipped, I decided that I would try to apply again, try to extend all of the things that I loved about performing and try to apply that not to distracting people, but to uplifting them and inspiring them and teaching them. And that was when I tried to um, uh, borrow a lot of the, the tools and the formulas and devices that I learned as a comedian and to try to recreate that in my new role when I was hired as an interim rabbi at the synagogue uh, and, and try to use the vehicle of not, not the, the joke part or storytelling part even of, of, of comedy, but, but the, uh, the audience ma attention management. That's what I really wanted to, to, because when you're a comedian, you are judged every 12 seconds. I mean, you have no grace. You have, you have 12 <laughs> seconds. If you don't make a person laugh in 12 seconds, you know, you, you lose people and you can see it very, very quickly when you lose them. Uh, you know, they're not laughing and then they start to get bored. And then, but with, with public speaking people, you could talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and people will sit politely and they won't interrupt you. They won't heckle you. They won't walk out, but they're checked out. So, so you have no idea until way, way later that you've lost people. But as a comedian, I can tell right away when I've lost someone. I can, I can, I can see it in their eyes. I can see when they start to pitch it. Bomb. Can... You bomb, you have a joke and you need bombs. In yeah, yeah. So it's, you, most public speakers are bombing, but they don't see it because, right. because they don't have that same, they're not being measured the same way. So I said, well, if I can measure myself as a public speaker the same way I would measure myself as a comedian and be very, very in tune with audience attention, very, very in tune to making sure that they're invested in, in hearing what I have to say, um, then I think that that would be golden. And, and so that's, that's kind of what I did. And then how did that lead to what you're doing now? How are you helping other people? So now, so, so to me, the, uh, the, the prime time slot of the rabbi is the sermon, is, is the Saturday morning sermon for pastors, ministers, uh, you know, congregational leaders, uh, for different persuasions. Usually it's Sunday morning, but Saturday morning, Sunday morning, it, it's the sermon and the sermon itself is the closest thing that you could get to an act, right? It's not, not necessarily comedy, but you have an audience there and you have about a 15 minute slot. You have a captive audience and they are there waiting for you. They, they want to be transformed. So, so to me, that was the closest parallel that I could think of to a, to a comedy act that, that where uh, what I loved was, was getting into a science, right? Finding you know, a beginning, a middle, an end, an arc, um, finding those, those uh, moments where you can be vulnerable and intimate with the audience and really uh, transform them. So they walk out differently than when they came in. So that's why I decided to focus on public speaking and the laser focused niche of sermon, sermon delivery, crafting and, and, and writing uh, and, and delivering a sermon. And so that's what I'm focused on now is, is using those same principles that I learned as a marketer, as a comedian, and applying it to that quote unquote formal presentation, that weekly slot of sermon delivery, where um, 
uh, a lot of people just fall flat. Have you found that there's a lot of people who want that type of help? So it's interesting. At, at first, everyone's like, you're crazy. <laughs> you know, th this is the most ridiculous, uh, you know, it's like a niche of one, like who, who, who is interested in this? And then uh, in September, right before the high holidays, there was an article in the New York Times about a woman. She's a playwright and she is, uh, she was a former ad executive and they call her the sermon whisperer. And what she does is she uh, is uh, a coach to, to mostly reforming conservative rabbis uh, and, and helps them with their high holiday sermon. For them, for that, the, the, the high holiday season is like, it's like the World Series of, of you know, sermons. There, there's a lot on the line. You're seeing people that you don't usually see uh, mo most of the year. They come in, they have a short amount of time to reach them and, and that's their perception of you as the rabbi for the year of what they see that that Rosh Hashanah that that uh, that Jewish New Year period. So uh, so I read something that she had. She was working on thirty three sermons that month, and she was charging something like four hundred dollars an hour. Wow. And I did some math in my head, and I said, "There's there's probably a market out there for for that. You know, that's yeah. just uh, that, that's her season. I don't know about the the off season, but." Uh, but so, uh, so I, I, I think that there's some, some meat on the bone. And so the, do you start your own company with this? It's like your own brand? Right. So I'm in building mode right now. I've helped a couple people uh, informally at the Columbus Community Coal. I gave a workshop and uh, I helped uh, an assistant rabbi at Temple Israel with his uh, high holiday sermon. Uh, so we're, you know, we're in building mode little by little. And uh, at the same time, I'm also interviewing a lot of the veterans. Uh, I came up with my own method based on my own principles. Um, but I think that there's a lot greater wisdom than I have to deliver from people who have been at it much longer than I have. So I've gone out and s I've sought some of the greats and I started a podcast called the Magid Method Podcast. And, uh, and what I do is I interview uh, people on their sermon methodologies and experiences. And, um, and I want to canonize that wisdom for the emerging uh, the younger generation of, of uh, congregational leaders and educators. So it's interesting. So you have this kind of spiritual foundation that you kind of built this on, but are you open to having people reach out to you who need help with public speaking or to coach them or is that? Yeah. Not yeah. I mean, it, it's, you got to start narrow and then you can widen out. You know, everyone can use public speaking, right. you know, even, even myself, sure. you know, everyone can use it. The question is, is if, if you try to reach everyone, you reach nobody. Right. So, so I figured I would start narrow in a world that I knew that I succeeded at, uh, and then branch out from there. So yeah, for sure. It's marketing one on one, right? Yeah. 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 So I'm curious, um, you know, for me, I've never taken a, a formal public speaking class or anything. I did the Dale Carnegie organization. Yeah. They kind of do walk you through um, a process. And yeah. it was, you know, it was over two decades ago that I did it. But the one thing that I personally learned, I'm curious to know your thoughts. And then I want you to share a little bit about, you know, your experience about what you know people should not be doing and things and tips and anything that you think people would enjoy hearing that you think could help them. Because I think everybody finds themselves at some point doing a toast getting an opportunity to speak, say a few words. If yeah. you're a leader, you're in front of your company all the time. And so you have that, you know, that microphone, you know, constantly. Sure. And it it has a huge, huge impact and influence when you're really good at what you do. Yeah. And I made a very big mistake early on when I did my company holiday parties. I used to write out my speech and I used to memorize that thing. And I never wanted to go up reading because I, I always thought whenever I saw someone reading, I'm like, that looks so bad. They're just reading. It's like, right, right. why would I come here? I could just post it online. Exactly. And I stopped doing it, but I memorized and it was the most stressful time of trying to like go to a holiday event when I was supposed to have fun. And I, and I never got it right. 
I yeah. never got it right. And I knew it didn't matter because I knew they wouldn't remember. Right. No one remembered anything. Right. And no one knew I messed up because I was right. good at covering it up. Yeah, but you're still that perfectionist part of you yeah, wanted to it, get it right. But I remember the year that I changed it. Yeah. I, I think I had talked to you about it. We, we were, I was listening to someone who, who told a joke about um, someone who was doing a sermon and he spoke for 45 minutes and a reporter was in the crowd and the reporter said to, the, to him, you know, hey, I have a radio show and I would love for you to come on and send this message. But the problem is I only have like a five minute slot. Can you take your 45 minute, you know, presentation of doing five minutes? The guy said, absolutely. He said, then why didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> you know, because right. like, you know, like the, the right. less is more kind of a concept. Yeah. And so after I remember seeing that, I did an open, which was either a shocking statement, a question, something mm -hmm. thought-provoking. And then my middle was always going to be a story or an experience because then I didn't have to memorize anything. I would just tell something about what I could speak about. And it didn't matter how I said it because I'm yeah. just reliving it, trying sure. to get them. And then I would close with- bring them into your movie. That's it. And yeah. then close with something I wanted them to leave it with or right. think about. Or, and right. so then it was just speak from your heart. Right. Right. And there was nothing to memorize. There was nothing to do. Right. It would never take a long time. I can make it longer by drawing out the story. Right. But it, for me, it became so easy just to do that. And then I just started using that concept no matter where right. I was, no matter what I did. So that was right. my, so I'm curious, like when you think about your coaching and what, mm -hmm. and your method, can you talk about, about a little bit about like how you would coach someone and, and right. is it similar so to that? What I'll, what I'll say to you is that, is that, uh, what, what you did is the, um, is probably like the, the most important part of my method, which is connection over the content. You know, if, if. You can connect with people. It almost doesn't matter what you say. Right. You know, it, it really doesn't. It, it's because no one's actually going to remember everything that you said, anyways. You know, we, we we're so close to what we want to say, and we think that like, you know, they're going to remember every little detail and and have, what word we use versus that word, and no, no one ever remembers it. Um, but what they do remember, the famous quote is, you know, people don't remember what you said, they remember how you made them feel. So that, that's really the most important thing. If you can connect with people, then it doesn't matter what you say. They'll give you the grace, they'll give you, but if you have the greatest content in the world, but they don't trust you or they don't like you or they don't, or there's no rapport there, uh, people just feel like you're trying to get through what you have to get through. You just try to get one over on you, try to, they, they feel that it's important for you to get this out to them and they, they feel like, you feel like you're talking at them and not to them. So the connection over the content, that's actually my, my very first step of, of my method. Um, and it's, it's the most important. You get everything else wrong, uh, but if you get that right, you're, you're, you're okay. Okay, sounds great, but then there's the how. Okay. How does someone connect? Yeah, so, so the easiest way, uh, and, and it's, so, it, it's so counterintuitive, but, but when you hear it, then it makes so much sense. So how do people connect with each other in real life? If you want, if you want to meet somebody and, and get a little closer to them, how, how do you connect? You no, know, it's funny. So Chet, uh, the leadership coach yeah. through Billsley, he taught, he teaches the fifty-five, thirty-eight, seven method, yeah. which is people will remember fifty-five percent of what they what they saw, and then thirty-eight percent of what they heard, and then the, it's the seven percent is like what you said. Yeah. No one cares what yeah. you said, yeah, like yeah. you just it's, said, right? Yeah. So, so I think about that, and so you, mm -hmm. when you asked your question, I think about our Billsley practices, and I think about how did we connect? We made eye contact. Okay. You know, it was our body language. It was it was what we saw from each other. You saw people engaged. So what's interesting is when people speak, they're usually not doing that. I know someone taught me early on, you're supposed to look and then yeah. and look at me. Yeah. And it's hard to do. You yeah, realize yeah. like you speak in front of a lot of people, you don't yeah. end up looking at anybody. You're just right. scanning the crowd. Right, right. So I think that's a that's a hard thing to do to, to right. connect. So so my method is is the following is when you when you get when you want to, you meet somebody and, and you get acquainted with them. So the way to take it to the next level is you start sharing things about yourself with them. And the when you share things about yourself that are that are vulnerable, um, 
what you do is you're basically, you're putting yourself in the other person's hand and you're trusting them and you're trusting that they won't exploit that and they won't abuse your trust. Um, and, and, it, and it feels a little bit, it, it's a little bit risky, you know, and, and what that does though is, is that it makes a, a, it fuses you together. Um, when you reciprocate that trust and you don't abuse it and you don't judge me for it, or you open up in turn and share something about yourself on the same, in the same area of challenge or struggle, whatever it is, that's what bonds people. And, and, and the more vulnerable that you can get, the closer you can get with people. And you think about your closest relationships, they're the ones that where people, uh, you're okay to talk to them about things that maybe you're going through. Well, you're yourself. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so, so that's when, when, when you strip away those facades now to do that, is very, when I said it was counterintuitive, people don't like to do it in a professional setting. They don't like to do it in a public speaking type of setting because they feel like, well, they're there for to hear me talk about you know, the newest software or they're here to hear me talk about the company uh, quarter, uh, you know, whatever whatever it is. They don't feel that, that it's their place to talk about themselves. But, but if you remember that, you know, when, when people look away, when people start to zone out, where do they go? They go usually, if they go to their phones, Right. If, if it's not Saturday in a synagogue, they'll go to their phones. And what are they doing on their phones? They're looking on social media. And why are they looking on social media? Because they're looking for humanity. They, they want to see what other people are doing. They want to connect with other people. And so they'd really like to connect with you if you would allow it. But, but they're not allowed. And they're staying on the people who are being vulnerable and transparent. <laughs> right, 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 right. So you're there up there. You know, they gave you the opportunity. You bailed on them because you thought that that's not what they wanted. And now, so they're, they're, they're you know, you didn't show up for them. So they're, they're not going to show up for you. So I would, I would challenge the, I agree 100%, but yeah. I would challenge the fact that I know how hard it is for people to be themselves. Yeah. And thank God, one of my one of my skills was I was able to be very vulnerable and transparent with my company, yeah. and it built an, an abundance amount of trust. Yeah, and it I was remember like, someone saying that they would run through walls for you. You know, or, yeah. <laughs> I just it was, it was amazing. I, I, I truly yeah. believe it's one of the the biggest skills of influence that a leader can have if they mm -hmm. have the ability to be vulnerable and transparent. Yeah through good times and bad times. And I yeah. just, it came easy for me. So that was easier for me to, you know, to be able to lead and, and communicate. I, I had other struggles. That one was not one of my struggles, but I've realized, and especially I learned this with everyone I worked with and in our leadership practices, mm -hmm. how hard it was for yeah. people to talk about themselves. And I think for a couple of reasons, one, it's uncomfortable. Sure. Two, you, you are putting your heart in their hand. They can squash you and they, yeah. they can hold it against you. They can yeah. use it against you. Yeah. But I think a lot of people don't know who they are to be able to talk about themselves. Right. And that's a problem too. Right. Right. So usually if you're only getting a one stop shop, you know, a toast or I get yeah. a chance someone asks me to speak in front of everybody and they're not used to it, the thought of going up and speaking about myself is the last thing I would do. Yeah. Which is ironic because it's the first thing you're telling people to go do. Right. Right. Now there's, there's degrees. I mean, you don't have to, you know, rip open your clothes and say, you know, here I am, you know, <laughs> you know, you don't, you don't have to do that. But, but a little goes a long way. Yeah. You know, you, you, there's, there's degrees. You can say, uh, you know, I got up here. I thought I was going to say this. And I, I just, I struggled with what I was going to say because I really appreciate your time and wanted to make it important to you. And, I, and I'm just, I'm nervous. I'm not going to, people are like, wow. You know, they just want to hold you in their arms, right. you know, and it, it's amazing. So you don't, you, I, what, I, what I advise people to do is, is at the beginning of the talk to share a, uh, a struggle, uh, a challenge, maybe a fear, maybe a regret. Uh, maybe something embarrassing that happened to them. So, something, something that shows the human side of yourself. Right. And and again, there's degrees. You don't have to go to town. You don't have to say, you know, my my brother brother abused me when I was five, and like no one wants to hear that. You know, they 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 just want to see who you are as a person, and then they'll buy into what you have to say, um, assuming that you've met the next step. Which is how? Tell me about storytelling. 
the, the power of storytelling yeah. and, and can storytelling be a, could that be something that you do even before sharing something personal about yourself and, or instead of, and have the same type of connection and impact? So storytelling is great. And I, I advocate using it as a, as a device all throughout it. So, so I would say maybe use storytelling to reveal yourself, to, to reveal something about yourself. You know, use that, use that framework of storytelling, which, which I have a, a great framework that I, I learned from, uh, believe it or not, of all places, South Park. The guys who created South Park mm. have, 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 a, have an incredible story framework that they used to make the show. I'll tell you, tell you about it in a second. But, uh, but the one thing about storytelling and joke telling and, and, and things that are shocking and things like that, opening, grabbing people's attention, it's very easy to get people's attention. It's really easy. It's like the easiest thing in the world. I mean, you could just hang out on the street and take a, a sign and start twirling it, right? right? And you can get people's attention very easily. The real trick is sustaining people's attention. It's not easy to sustain people's attention. So I'm very reluctant when, when people you know, talk about, you know, should I open with a story? Should I open with this? You don't want to bait and switch people, right? You'll grab their attention. And then as soon as you go into some type of substance with them, they're going to be like, no, that's, that's boring. I, I only wanted the funny part, the shocking part, the interesting part. So, so it becomes like a clickbait type of thing. So, so storytelling is in itself, I don't think, is, is, has a virtue. But in a larger framework of how you're going to get your message across, I think it, it's very It's important. a skill. I mean, yeah. you have to be a good storyteller. Yeah. You can't just tell a story. Right. So, so, so that's the, the South Park guys came up with this, this method. And uh, there's actually someone who, who saw them talk about it. And he came up with an entire, he wrote a book and has a whole like movement about the, their method. And it's the simplest thing in the world. I've never seen a simpler storytelling method. It's three steps. It's called, uh, well, what this guy calls it, uh, I forget what his name is, who uh, he wrote a book, but uh, it's called ABT, and, but, therefore. So this is what happens. So, so you can look it up, uh, the South Park, uh, Trey, uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone, I think they, they were giving a, uh, a class at, uh, I don't know, some film academy at NYU or something like that. And so they said, this, this is how we approach it. Someone comes up, one of the writers comes up with a script. And immediately what we do is we look how many ands are there. And this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened, and this happened. And then we try to put in buts in the middle of the ands. So, and this happened. And that's, you know, if you just have a lot of ands, you're just like a journalist. You're just saying, you know, this, you know, I went to the store and I bought some cake and I took it home and I ate it and it, it gets boring. You know, you just, if you keep on driving a straight line, just, you know, you eventually hit a brick wall. So, uh, so what they did is they, they put in butts. Butts are like the left, they're, they're the conflict. They, they, they take it, you know, it turns, they zigzag. So, so the person is continuously interested in finding out what happens in the story. So I went to the store, I went to the store to buy some cake, but they were sold out. Now that, that now you have, okay, well now what happened? Therefore, is the resolution of from after, you know, it took a left turn to get back on track, it, which direction are you gonna go? Therefore, I decided to get some uh, potato chips instead, right? And so, so if you keep on every, in the script, if you keep on putting, look how many ands you have. If there's too many ands, you gotta start mixing them up with left turns and right turns, zigzagging. And then as a result of the zigzag, then something else happened and something else happened and something else happened and now you have a story. But what most people do is they, they just like, well, I guess you had to be there. You know, <laughs> like it just fizzles out. It's because there's no conflict and there's no, it doesn't go anywhere. It's just a, it's just a, a, a an exhaustive list of facts. So the and but therefore framework, I, 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 if you have a story to tell and you're not a good storyteller, just make sure that you, there's a lot of buts and therefores in there. Right. Then, you can really it. lose someone when they dray on and on and oh, on. Oh man, it just goes on and on. You're just like, man, this is, right. uh, you, you, it's, it's so simple. Uh, and, and I got so excited when I saw it. And that, that's, uh, 
you know, so so even when I write now, I'll I'll put in buts and therefores within my writing just to make sure that that it's not uh, it's just not you know driving in a straight line. It's interesting. How much do um, for the audience who doesn't know what a quick start is? A quick start is someone who's got thousand thoughts run through their heads and they can go in any direction. They can switch gears on a dime, but you know, for a crowd, that's not so good. Yeah. And I would imagine that your personality and depending on the type of kind of mode you're in, if you're someone who changes gears and you talk about a lot of things all at once or you're talking too fast, you can also really lose people because sure. you're you're talking off topic yeah. off things and you just you think of something and you start talking about it. How 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 would you coach someone who does that to keep them on track? You know, if they're not writing down their speech. Yeah. It's very simple. You don't want to make more than one point in a speech. Just one point. So if, if you're going to talk off the cuff and, and just jump around and, you know, a quick start and, you know, you're going to risk people not being able to follow you. You have to think about what's the most important thing that you want them to take away when they leave. And so anything that doesn't fit into that uh, is going to confuse people. Is they're, they're strapped in for a ride that they have no idea where you're taking them. They can't scroll through your talk. They can't fast forward. They're sitting there. You're releasing information little by little by little in a linear fashion, and they have no way to know where the good parts are, what's in it for them. What's so so? It might be an enjoyable experience to watch you freewheel and, and go off in all different directions, and you may very well connect with them. But they may be confused as to what you wanted them to take away with at the end. So that's what I, I would lead with. You know, before you sit down and decide, uh, you know, I, I got to talk to these people today. Think about that one thing, just one thing. If, is, if there's is, only one thing. Is less is more in this case. I mean, if someone says you're going to speak for 30 minutes, that might be hard to have one thing. I mean, usually, though, you can make a couple different points if you're right, right. long so speech. I would say people will people will sit through, you know, people always say people's attention spans are, are, are shrinking, right? It's the shortest attention span in the history of man. People, my son is uh, uh, on TikTok. And he scrolls through videos. He doesn't even allow the six seconds of the TikTok. He, he's like, I don't like this one. Give me another one. Give me another one. And he'll do that for eight, nine hours at a time. And I cannot imagine what that's doing to his attention span. But on the same token, movie lengths are sky high. They, they've never been more longer than, than they are now. The, the feature films now are two and a half hours long. So you can't tell me people's attention spans are short. If right. someone's willing to sit, sit through it, it's they're short. More, they're just more selective as to what they're going to pay attention to. So if you're able to hold people's attention through connection and through a couple other steps that I'll tell you about, but uh, it doesn't matter how long it is. It doesn't really matter. But but you don't want to confuse people with more than one point. Save it for another speech. Um, just keep it all on that one point, and and you can't go wrong, in my opinion. Okay. So some of the the do's and don'ts just to get them out of the way before we move on. You know, again, when I see people reading off note cards, it drives me absolutely crazy. Um, so someone who uses props, uses slides, uses whatever that is, what's, what's your advice? Is it good? Is it bad? I mean, on Saturday morning, you can't do that. But yeah. for people just in general for public speaking, do you, do you recommend that slides are used if they, if they have an option and they choose to do it versus not? Um, I mean, it really depends on what the goal is. You know, if, if, you, if you're there to connect with them as a person, uh, as, as more as like, let's say a, a class or something like that, where you're there to impart information, to learn, right? I would say maybe there's a place for slides. Well, you don't want to do what I hate more than anything else. My biggest pet peeve is, is, is handouts, handing it. So what you end up doing is, is people just look at the handouts all the time because they're bored. You're boring them. So they're hoping that maybe there's something <laughs> interesting on the handout. That's, you know, I, 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 that's my biggest pet peeve. If you can't remember what you want to say, 
Uh, I would definitely don't script it out. You know, just put have some bullet points, but but know where you're going and know and know where you're headed and, and what you want people to take away. If uh, um, if someone goes blank in the middle of a speech, they forgot what they were going to say, they forgot their next point, whatever it is. Outside of being vulnerable and doing what we said before, which just says, wow, yeah. I just completely forgot what I was going to say. Which is fine. Guys, totally which probably fine. would work. Yeah, it'd give you a heart attack, but you could do it. Yeah. And people could probably really feel yeah. you know, the pain and feel sure. for you. But is there anything, and how, 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 do, how does some, did that ever happen to you? It, it happened to me as a comedian often, because sometimes uh, you forget where you are in your act and, and, and you, get, <laughs> you get thrown off and you're just like, oh my gosh, it, it, is, it is the scariest feeling in the world. <laughs> you, 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 because... Uh, I mean, you just can't stop the show. You, you, right. you can't stop. And so, so I would take a drink, you know, and, and to, in my mind, it, it's the longest pause in the world. To other people's minds, it doesn't. What they advise you to do as a comedian is to have what's called a street joke. A street joke is a joke that's not an original joke, but it's a funny joke that most people haven't heard yet. And it's, it's, uh, it's just like a joke that comedians tell each other on the street. Uh, most people haven't heard it, but if, it's funny, but it's not original. Have a couple of those in your back pocket. Right. So the same thing I would say over here is have a story in your back pocket. You know, to take a pause and say, okay, and, and it comes back to you. Eventually, it'll come back to you. But you, you need to buy yourself that time. Right. So have a drink, take a step. If you don't want to be vulnerable, I, I, these days that's what I would do. I, I it's almost like a, a game for me how vulnerable I can be. <laughs> you know, so right. so I I will because I I know the results. I, I I've seen how much it bonds the audience to you. So I, I will see how far I can go with my vulnerability without, without embarrassing myself or, or anybody I know. But, uh, but so my first go-to would be to, to reveal that like, oh my gosh, it just went blank. This is crazy. Like, okay, give me a second, bear with me. Okay, we're back. So I would do something like that, you know, just as a game to see if I'm willing to do that. But, uh, but for other people, I would say, come up with a short little story or something like that, that, yeah. that you could say almost in any setting that would, would buy us the time to, to remember. Awesome. So. My, um, <clears throat> this podcast is called Authentic Authority. So you've been- I love your questions. <laughs> so you've, you've yeah, uh, I think you'll like these next ones too. Yeah. It, it'll uh, it'll both put us both in a, in a position, I think that hopefully we'll be comfortable talking about, but um, it's real and it's raw. And I think that's what people connect to. And I agree with you hundred percent. And yeah. I remember the first time you came into my company. And I remember the first time you came into Built to Lead practice, which is a leadership practice that I did with my team. And I remember always watching you sitting there in, in, in the corner, in, the, in a chair, leaning back, and you're a very deep thinker. <laughs> you're a very deep thinker. And, <laughs> and sometimes maybe, yeah. but I do, I do that too. But I think yeah. um, you were always very open. And when we would share things around the table, you never had a problem sharing your thoughts. And I, you know, that's one thing I loved about you is like, I know what I get with you. You were always going to just share what you think and you weren't going to just say things to try to fit in with other people. And you're very distinct. There's no question. So I want to talk about um, leadership and I want to talk about your journey and your builder's journey, because you just said people like watching movies for two and a half hours. And so at Built to Lead, we talk about that. We say it's because it's this hero's journey. There's a yeah. story being told about someone that you're rooting for and you want to see this person win. And it's like the Rocky story. You know, you yeah. watch the end of that movie and yeah. you just are fired up. Right. The hairs are right. stand up in the back of your head. Right. And in Built to Lead, we talk about the builder's journey. Mm -hmm. And everybody's got a builder's journey. Now, where people are on that path 
And I had a front row seat to your path for a certain period of time, especially as you were trying to figure out like what your magnum opus in life really is. And you were trying to find, and you touched on it when you said, you know, um, COVID and you talked about, you know, being stand up. And I watched you and I remember seeing videos that you put out there at some events that were awesome. And I remember seeing you do an event and you were really funny, you know? So you, you had this talent, but you said you, at some point realize this is not going to be what's going to be fulfilling me and my magnum opus. Yeah. So it took a while to get there. I mean, I'm almost 50 and, uh, it, it's, uh, it's scary. It's because you, you, you want to plant your flag somewhere and you think, okay, this is where I'm planting it. And then, you know, two years later, three years later, you're like, that's still not it. Still not it. And you keep on moving around and you're like, when, when, when is it going to stay? When is it going to be in that one place? And I, I think it's in that one place now. I'm pretty sure. So that's awesome. And yeah. I want to get to that. But I want to talk real quick about the struggle of what you went through when you wrote the book. My first book, yeah. Uh-huh. And, um, and also touch on the fact that you had this storytelling video production company. Yeah. Where you had come to my office and did videos and, and people are still watching those videos. I'm still showing people those videos yeah. and it really helped me tell my story. And it was such, in my opinion, a winner. And I read your LinkedIn post the other day when the guy seared you. Oh. <laughs> uh, so I want yeah. the guy seared you with his comments. Oh, that was great. Yeah, that was the Sandler guy. So can you real quick just just walk us through that? Um, so, so I, I took communications in college, television, radio, and advertising was really my thing. I like, I love the idea of, of, uh, of encapsulating, um, the, the, the selling point of something, whatever it is, you know, for, for your company, it was, it was the, the authenticity. It was the, it was the heart of, of the collection agency. Uh, and I, I love that. I always loved capturing the essence of something and being able to, 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 to take it and shape it and, and present it to the world in, in a new light that it hadn't seen before. And, um, so, so when, when, when I, uh, when I left, uh, the not-for-profit world where I was a Jewish educator for many years, uh, the most intuitive thing to me was, was to go into advertising marketing, uh, to try to try to use that, that talent of mine. And so, uh, I had no idea about sales. I had no, it, it was just like, oh, let's, let's just hang out a shingle and say <laughs> we're in business. And I had no idea how that was. You know, I, I must have been an idiot <laughs> and it was, it was the tail end of the recession. And it was, it was, I mean, video was, was, was starting to get big, but, but, uh, people weren't really spending money on, on things like that at the time that, that I, at least people I had access to. And so I had to take some sales training and, uh, I took the Sandler sales system of, of training, which was, was very aggressive, very assertive for my <laughs> personality. And it had me doing cold calls and, and cold meetings and, and asking for one call closes. You know, I remember you bristled at that when, when we were meeting. <laughs> I never time. did that. I know. I, I said, you know, you can't think about it. You have to tell me yes or no. And you totally you know, pushed back on that. But to me, it was, it was, it, it was the hardest, hardest time of my life. I mean, besides the fact doing sales and needing money is a bad mix. You know, you don't want to go into a sales call desperate for the, for the sale. And I was feeling all that. I was so raw. I was doing things that were so outside my comfort zone. I had no idea what I was doing. And, and I was so far in, I couldn't, I couldn't scale back at that point and, and try to reorient. I was just, I figured I, I just have to make this work somehow. And it was, it was so raw. And I ended up writing a book from my experiences where, where I basically bottomed out. And, and I realized that like, I, I just, I had, I become so scarce and I had let so much of, of uh, my need for money 
shape who how I interacted with people, even in my own family, uh, and it was it was just really bad. And then when I when I said I won't do this anymore, uh, things actually started to develop in a positive way. I started to become healthier physically, emotionally. Opportunities started to pop up that I couldn't that I probably was squeezing away before because of my. Uh, I met the sales guy. He told me he said you have commission breath. <laughs> That's what he said. He said you know it, it's like you can smell it on on a salesperson. You know it's a, it's a they need the sale. I, I just felt very needy and and I thought I was being a good salesperson, but it was uh, so so the story that I wrote about was a was a guy who, uh, who he was a fellow he was a Sandler graduate that that uh, I asked him for some help with uh, on something and and he just blasted me about how that I had no conviction and what I did. Uh, it was it was just hard. <laughs> it was just a comedy errors, you know. And I look back on it now. It's there's a, in comedy what they call there's a formula for comedy, and it's tragedy plus time equals comedy. So so that was a tra- that was a very tragic time. It was about 12, 13 years ago. Uh, now now it's kind of funny to laugh at. You know, now I can laugh at it. But at the time it was it was it was awful. I mean, you know, I'd, I'd, I'd leave the house every morning beaten before I even, you know, hit the street. And it was just, it just seemed endless and I didn't know how it was going to ever end. So, uh, and then, uh, had a couple of good years and, you know, you know how it is feast and famine, sure. self, self-employment, you, you hope. Uh, so what was it like talking to people in my company who were employees? Yeah. You also saw my journey and you were very close to my journey. So you yeah. knew what I was doing and what I was shooting at. So you were seeing other people as you were trying to figure out your builder's journey, you saw all these other people trying to write their magnum opus. You saw people sharing it. Yeah. Um, was that easier? Did that make things harder? Just give me your thoughts on just the experience of going, kind of going through a program where we were trying yeah. to figure that out. I love being involved in it. It would, it was, it was a highlight of my week. It was when I was there. Even if I wouldn't speak up, just being in the room opened something in me and made me feel differently and think differently and, and it would spill over to the rest of the week. And there were times that I didn't speak up or do any of the exercises, but but just being in that in that growth environment and, and seeing people able to share, people um, calling each other out in a safe environment where it wouldn't be held against them at work, uh, I thought was so so real and genuine and, and uh, so necessary. I mean, people don't usually have that safe space where they can do that. And, and I saw that how it bonded people, how the, the, the team became so cohesive as a result of that. Uh, it was amazing to me. And, and, and I was, that was, I think, right after that time period that I described earlier. And it was, it was very healing to me. It was, it was very, it was great to, to see people not having it all figured out, working through it with each other, um, that, that spirit of camaraderie and, and lifting each other up and helping each other and wanting to be there for each other. And, uh, it was, it was amazing. I'll never forget that time. It's interesting. So, so what would you say would be one of your biggest takeaways from your experience kind of going through that program with us and being part of the team and, and coming in as a visitor and telling your story and then being one of one of us, right? Yeah. You, like you are like merging with our team. Yeah. Um, but there were a lot of a lot of things learned in Built to Lead and we cover lots of content and we talk about worldview and principles and yeah. big visions and then we talk about whatever the group wants to go or that wherever we want to go. But what's something maybe you can kind of just share that like maybe either stands out or that you took away from it that you feel like you really adapted in your life? I'll tell you one thing that, that, that sticks in my mind. And I think this is from one of the videos that we did together, which is uh, Alicia. Alicia said, uh, she said, before Built to Lead, I, I was sleepwalking through life. I was sleepwalking. And I didn't really understand at the time, but the more that... I proceed through life. I, I, I realize the 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 autopilot that 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 type of 
well, that's what everybody else is doing. So, and I'm caught up in this. And so that seems to be the right thing to do next. And, and you just kind of, you, you're just, you're, you're sleepwalking. You know, you're not, you're not really awake and present. And I think that that was something that, that Built to Lead really gave me is, is that, that be awake, be intentional, be present, be, be purposeful about what you're doing and uh, make sure that you can explain it, not just to other people, but also to yourself. It's funny because one of the purposes of Built to Lead is to wake people up. Yeah. It's to jolt people, yeah. right? Yeah, and Chet was great at that. You were great at that. And I saw you, how, how you'd interview people when they'd come in and <laughs> they'd walk out with it, <laughs> wearing a tie when they came in and like, you know, pull down four buttons open. It's hard like, to get to the root of who someone really is. Yeah. And Built to Lead, what we try to do is we try to get to the root of like, who are you? And the problem is, again, I, I say it because it, it is one of the hardest things to do is to know mm-hmm. who you are. In fact, one of the pieces of Built to Lead is the identity piece. And I, I for probably a decade really was writing things out about, oh, I'm a son, I'm a brother, I'm a friend, I'm a, but I didn't really know who I was until I realized, wow, like I used to be this athlete, mm, I'm not an athlete anymore. And yeah. then I was an entrepreneur and then yeah. all of a sudden like I sold my business. I'm like, right. who, who am I? Who's the real you? And it led, for me, it led a, a big part of my life, which is my faith. And when I used to think about your experience with our company, the one thing that stands out to me is I remember how calm you were almost almost like scary calm when you were going through really hard times trying to figure things out and you were you were very patient and i remember thinking and saying to you like well what are you doing now and i remember one time you told me you're going to take some time and you're going to pause yeah and i remember thinking oh my gosh like there's no way i'd be able to do that how yeah. can you do that yeah and you dove deep into faith and you're learning and just yeah. really it felt to me like you were trying to find yourself still or yeah. reinvent yourself into like figuring out what you right. wanted to do. Right. Yeah, that, that, that's accurate. Um, I mean, what looks like calm on the outside is not always calm on the inside, but, uh, but patient maybe is, is, is accurate. And that's a gift from that, that harrowing, difficult, scarce experience where uh, I didn't have any money. I didn't know when the next money was coming in. And, and, uh, and I lived that like that for a long time. And it taught me there's, there's two worlds you can live in. There's the world of scarcity and there's the world of abundance. And it really doesn't matter how much money you have. You could, people are very wealthy and very scarce. You know, the, uh, we saw a story about the founder of Ikea. He was a, a, a multi, a multi-billionaire, I think. And he used to recycle tea bags, gift mm-hmm. wrapping, things like that. He was, he was the cheapest guy on the planet. And, uh, and so, so what's all that money worth if, if you can't appreciate it? And, and the same, on the, by the same token, there are people that don't have money that are, are beyond happy. You know, we, we know these types of people, you know, in hovels in the, you know, back alleys of Jerusalem that are just, you know, serene and, uh, and, and in all different places in the world. So, so the gift of not having money for an extended period of time and seeing that I was still okay and that I'd be okay, that gave me that gift of, that long-term vision that it's going to be okay that that i have i'm always supported i'm always cared for uh things have a way of opening up so i remember someone saying to me that like when i when i decided one of my iterations when i thought i was going to go out on the road and do some stand-up comedy and i didn't really have much savings at all and someone said i, I wouldn't have the stomach to do that i don't i don't know how you have and i said well, that was you know like when after you go through what i went through you know it doesn't scare you anymore 
you know, that, that's one of those like Jeff Bridges in that movie Fearless where he, he almost dies and then he, he, he doesn't have that fear of dying anymore because you, you, you came all the way to the edge and you saw that you're okay. So that, that's the gift. And, and I constantly have to remind my wife about that. Some, you know, when, when we go through a period where we're not sure where the next paycheck is going to come from or something, I'm like, we went through that once before. You know, if, we, if there's any lesson that we took from that, it's that, is that it's going to be okay. You know, that, 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 you know, we're upstanding individuals, you know, we're just going to put our best foot forward. Uh, and, and we're fine. We're good. You know, we're not, I'm not going to feel poor living in, in a, in a house that someone would feel rich in. Right. You know, why, why would I do that to myself? So that's, uh, that's the gift. That was the gift. It wasn't, a, it wasn't anything I would have chosen for myself, but, but you know, God gives you what you, not what you, what you ask for, what you need. Right. So, uh, so that, 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 that's, that's, it was a gift. It was it was a painful gift. But it was a gift. And how much of um, of that part of the journey do you rely on on God? And and did it get stronger as you kept kind of going through these and building the muscle to be able to be patient? <laughs> it's not it's not linear, unfortunately. You know, it, because it's so emotional, it goes up and down. Right. And, you know, sometimes you, you you dip a little bit lower than than the comfort level that you, you've you've created for yourself. And you're like, it gets a little heart pounding again, and then and then you're like, okay. But, let me remind myself. And uh, every now and then, I have people come up to me and, and send me texts about the book, and they, and they talk to me. They said, "You know, go through a hard time. I got the book. I got the book." And so, if the book works for other people, it should work for me. <laughs> you know, it, right. it was that was it was my way of writing myself. I, I always tell people I wrote myself out of my own grave with a pen. That that's really what it was. It was it was I wasn't I could not make sense of what I was going through. So I just I sat in a coffee shop on the Cassidy. You know that coffee shop up there, the uh, right by the co-op actually co-op mm-hmm. and I sat in that coffee shop it was previous owner and it was it used to be this dark place and they had like a standing lamp and I would just sit they had like one table and I sit in the corner I wrote the book in that corner uh over the course of a year and it was uh, it was it started off as just blog posts and it was just trying me to make trying it was me trying to make sense of things of how to get it all out and and, and make sense of it and why I was going through it and what I could learn from it and how I could maybe help people on the other side with it and I never really did much with it because it's, it's one of those things that was just it, it, it was personal and at the same time it was also when you're doing better you don't really want to dwell on that time period so um but but i, I draw from it often i do and, and the main thing that i really draw from it more than anything else is that there's a tendency at least for me that when you're not doing well to kind of seclude yourself and not to be not to reach out to people uh not not to you know it, go it, dark. yeah yeah because because you're not you're not at least in your mind you don't want to you know you don't want to be the i don't know like a, like a, a rain on someone's parade you know you want to you want to be successful and appear successful so so that's a lot where i learned my my the power of vulnerability in that because i i needed to reach out to ask for people for help and i needed to to network and i needed to do these types of things and and it was the last thing i wanted to do i just i wanted everybody to think i was doing fine and um but you have sometimes you just you're forced into it and so that the people, people, I have a chapter in the book. It's called "People Who Need People Who Need People Are the Greatest People in the World." Um, so, um, so that was that's from a song, right? From "People Who Need People," Barbara Streisand song. <laughs> that that that's that's what it's about. It's about people. It, it's about you know not going dark, not secluding yourself, putting yourself out there, being involved in people. People are your really your greatest asset. Yeah. Yeah. What uh, would you say right now, looking and doing some self discovery, reflecting on your life at this point? Something that you believe and um, could be about anything, business, personal, professional, spiritual, anything. 
where yeah. you feel like there's that integrity gap, which is that you're you're not doing what you want to be doing because you believe like I should be doing this, but you're just not doing it. Do you have do you have one yeah. that you could share? Yeah, prayer for sure. Prayer is like highest up on the list. I, I I can pray my own words well when I feel the need. Uh, very often, the 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 typical uh, the routine, the the couple of set times a day that we Orthodox Jews do. Uh, I got into a habit a long time ago of daydreaming, and it's so hard for me to get out of it. And and on on the outside, I'm doing everything else well in my life, uh, you know, studying and and uh, acts of kindness and, and and all sorts of stuff that I should be doing. Prayer is like a vacuum for me. It's 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 uh, at least routine prayer, uh, and and I recognize that that's that's a gap. And and I, I don't so what can you do? What 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 can you? Because that's something that a lot of yeah. people struggle with. Probably yeah. almost everybody. Not you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me you too. Got it. <laughs> but how how do you? Yeah. What's something that you can do, or or is that just something that just kind of is a chronic problem that you just doesn't go away? No, it's it's a regimen. It, it's it's how you address any other problem. You have to sit down, baby steps. Uh, you know, work through it. It's something you know you you accomplish a little bit, then you build on a little bit more, a, bit, a little bit more, and and um, it's just, it's just one more thing that I have to actually have to start and, and do. Does the events going on right now change anything to do with that issue for you? It helped. It definitely helped. It, a lot of the things that, a lot of the, the text of prayer is addresses things that are going on in the world right now. So so the words were jumping off the page. You know, anytime there's, the trick is, is you know, anytime there's a time of crisis, everybody instinctively reaches out to, for prayer. You know, that there's no atheists in foxholes. And right. so, so those, those types of things is, COVID at the beginning of COVID, it was, you know, I remember there was a time in the beginning of COVID, it was like the first couple of days when no one really knew what was going on. And there was a blackout. And if you remember Bexley, there was like a blackout. I'm like, oh my gosh, the, the world is totally ending right now. <laughs> like, like there's a worldwide pandemic. We're being targeted. The, 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 there's no electricity. The people are going to start riding in the streets. It was freaking. So, so, so you, you instinct, instinctually re reach out at those times. But right. the trick is, is that, is the times that things are calm, that things are not, uh, in crisis mode, H how do you uh, have that ongoing relationship with God where th things are fine? You know, people, they always say in Jewish, uh, in all outreach really, is that uh, the hardest people to reach are, are people in their 20s and 30s when everything's going great for them. You know, career is going strong, family's going strong, everything's going strong. You know, it, it's when you get older or when you get sick or when you, or you go through some type of crisis, that's when people reach out. So that there's no, there's no that, that that's no trick you know the real trick is to have that ongoing relationship with god when everything's going well uh, and that that that's harder and that's something i struggle with uh, you said things jump out of you the page like i, I yeah. was doing uh saying psalms and Tehillim, and the word yeah. hamas is everywhere and i yeah. and i never i never caught yeah. it and now i'm seeing it like yeah. everywhere on the page yeah, right yeah, it's in the i look over and it just says violence and it says that's right, violence. <laughs> that's right. it's weird it's crazy like just uh it's very weird the torah talks a lot about um it kind of makes predictions, right? I mean, it talks about what things will be like, what things will, you know, it's incredible today. Um, as, a, as a practicing Jew, you know, the, the fear of people hating us for no reason outside of the fact that they hate something that's going on that they're seeing. But like, I saw something last night that really was eye-opening for me. There was someone talking about how everyone who's protesting right now, mm -hmm. they're going crazy. But when other countries who have the same exact thing going on right now, People are getting killed all over the world. Yeah, people are being murdered by their own government. Right. Four hundred thousand people in Yemen, and, and no one's saying a word. And no yeah. one's prote yeah. protesting that, yeah. which really shows <laughs> true colors because they're only coming out and protesting yeah. when this is happening. And I, I yeah. think that's an interesting kind of illuminating. I had an interesting thought this morning. It was people were talking about because because to be fair, the, the people are also 
Muslims are, are getting the brunt of, of some of the, so I think it's called like Islamophobia, right? So what's interesting is, is that there's people are, there's Islamophobia, which people are nervous about Islam, but they're anti-Semites. So people are not nervous <laughs> about Jews because Jews are not really violent people. You know, they're, they're, not, right. they're not by nature, uh, you know, the, but, uh, but for some reason, you know, there's anti-Semitism, but there's Islamophobia. You know, right, that's uh, interesting. I don't know. Right. And I don't want to get controversial. But. Right. All right. Well, we uh, we covered a lot. We, yeah. We, yeah. We, oh, it's a pleasure. We it's went through a lot. Indulgence. Uh, yeah. It's really enjoyable. So um, I just want to, one last question. I yeah. just want to put you on the spot. Sure. And if we, if you tell me to edit it out, I'll edit it out. But I mean, if you're a comedian, I'm wondering if you have something in your back pocket or if you can think of a joke or something um, that you can share that uh, well, <laughs> you know, don't make me laugh. My, my mind <laughs> is not in it so much as it used to be. A, a comedian's mm. mind, I, I, I've been become dull, but a comedian's mind is always, always, always looking. It, it's a different way of looking at things. It's 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 uh, you're putting on glasses and, and everything around you. Uh, you're looking for the funny part of things, and and to the point where sometimes when comedians will be talking to each other and and there'll be some type of something a little bit funny, you can see that glint in their eyes and their glint in your eyes, and they're like, "Who gets it? Is it mine or is it yours?" You know, it, it's it, it's this it's a it's a glut. You become a glutton for, for for humor. So so my mind has has my eyes have have kind of shifted focus. So I don't I don't look at the world like that so much anymore. But I, I remember some of the jokes that I used to do, and I don't even remember them as well as I used to, even though I've done them so many times. But I do remember there was a joke that I used to do. And I, I loved, my, my thing was, I enjoyed playing with the English language. I loved like wordplay. So I always used to talk about how um, kids, you know, ki kids are, are just so messy, you know, and, and having like little kids, it's, you're, you're like a janitor in your own home. And that's why when, when parents split up, whoever gets the kids is called getting custody. <laughs> for the word custodian, right? Or when a woman has a, you know, when someone gives birth to a lot of kids, it's called a litter, right? So, so I, I like, I love those types of jokes where you just, you know, it, it, it almost, you, you, you wonder how could everyone, how could anyone have missed that? That, right. that, that having a lot said, of kids is called litter. Right, right? right. I mean, it's hysterical. Right. I, I, when I came yeah. and watched you stand up, you're, <clears throat> your stories about your family <laughs> and about your kids. Right. And then I saw a video that you did with your daughter. Yeah. And I yeah. was so impressed because she was so good. She was, she's a, she <laughs> she was, was so she's a good. Yeah. It's unbelievable. Yeah, she was, she was great. We, we did that at the, uh, the diner over on uh, Enfield and, and uh, Enfield in Maine, the grill at the skillet or whatever, skillet diner. And so we went there one Sunday morning after they closed and I had a film guy there. And I, my daughter, I think, was maybe eight at the time. And, uh, and we sat there and we just, we just did this like who's so on good. first scene. And, and she was just... See, she shown. She she did it. She did a great job. So good. So if people want to look you up. Uh, where can they find you? So these days you can find me either on LinkedIn. Okay. Uh, the real Daniel Steinberg uh, is uh, my profile, and uh, and then the other place is uh, the Magid Method is my website. M a g g i d method dot com, and that that's where you can get access to uh, to my wisdom on that. You know the, that I I've amassed over the years, and it's funny to call it wisdom. The uh, in Ethics of the Fathers, Perkyavos, so they talk about the different uh, uh, age age brackets of a person and, and what they um, can contribute in the world. So uh, so 50 is is counsel, 50 is advice. So I'm almost 50 this year. And uh, so I feel like I could start sharing some some uh, road, road warrior wisdom. For, uh, you definitely, speaking. You definitely so. have a lot. You're probably one of the smartest guys I've ever met in my life. So yeah. I appreciate our relationship. I appreciate you coming yeah. in today and sharing everything you share, being open with us. And sure. uh, yeah, go visit. You know uh, how to bring out the best in, uh, in your guests. All right, sounds good. All right. Questions. All right, thank you very All much. Right, you got it. Thank That's you. So good. Okay.